The next transit part from platform 5 will be the 1400 train to Aberdeen, calling at York, Darlington, Newcastle, Merricon, Tweed, Edinburgh, Waverley, Haymarket, Cooper, Bluehurst, Dundee, Arbroath, Montreux, and Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called The Train at Platform 5, an oral history of King's Cross rail workers. A team of researchers interviewed 25 people who worked at this busy London railway terminal to document what life was like working at the station for drivers, guards, pantry boys, station staff and more. In this third and final episode, we explore the joys and pain of the work, the pay and conditions, the role of the union and the impact of privatisation on the work. We hope you enjoy it. cross into the tunnels heading off into the night really exciting you know you you can't you can't even measure how brilliant that was and every single time you thought yeah here we go you know walloped it open raw off you go the scenery on the journey is so different because you you come out of King's Cross and you know you're going into the Gasworks Tunnel straight away so going into the Gasworks Tunnel is quite good because you come out of that then you're on the second tunnel so you've got all that kind of industrial stuff of the, of the tunnels uh, you, you then you because you're on the main line you're zipping past Finsbury Park you go from through some beautiful places going up the East Coast main line going up to York I mean York's a beautiful station in itself lovely architecture you've got things like the Welling Viaduct which is a wonderful part of countryside and you see it in the spring, you see it in the summer, you see it in the, in the winter so you can see it full of snow. There was a lot of prestige, we were working the most famous engines on the fastest trains in the country. Being in a crew of two men, if you were, if you were with a, your regular mate or some of the, the guys you really got on well with, it was an enjoyable day, the day had passed very quickly. It wouldn't feel as though you'd been at work at all. It would feel as though you'd had a day out. Belting down the East Coast main line um, at, at sort of 100 mile an hour was, was great. Because obviously in the freight um, job that I did previously, we were governed to sort of 25 miles an hour, very loose, uh, loose couple train, very slow. Now you just run at 100 mile an hour and put the brake on and it stopped. It was wonderful. <laughs> Over time, you became qualified to know every single speed, every single junction, every single tunnel, signal, bridge, absolutely everything. And that enabled us to drive those trains at full speed in the fog or snow or anything like that. Excuse the expression, but you'd drive a train with your ears and your ass. You'd feel where you were and hear where you were. But there was also mileage payments, which the further you went in a day's work, the more miles you covered, the more pay you got. And at King's Cross, we were doing very long distances. In fact, the longest runs in the country at that time. So we were earning a lot of money once you got onto those trains. My favourite job would be a Grantham return, which was going to give me a nice five hours mileage but without being 
too hard work. It's only less than two hours to Grantham. It was a nice little country town where you could go for a nice stroll outside, get a bit of fish and chips, and have a look round, and then work one back, and without doing too much work, you got good money. That would be my favourite day's work. One of the guys at King's Cross called Harry Samuels, um, I was his driver's assistant one day, and we had a job, job to go over to Stratford. And on the way there, I mean, the, the track work, again, in the 70s and 80s, left a lot to be desired, which is why there were quite a lot of derailments and things. And he said, right, we're going to Stratford today, he said, and to get there, we have to go over this really rickety bridge. And it's so bad, you have to sl slow down to five miles an hour, because you're going faster, you probably the bridge will fall down, you know. Uh, and he said, and he got, on the, he got on the cab, and he bought on the cab with him a, a bucket of bricks. And I looked and I thought, why has he got a bucket of bricks with him? And he said to me, he said, oh, by the way, he said, you're going to be driving today, he said. I said, OK. He said, and he said, and when we get just before that bridge at Stratford, he says, you're only going to be going five miles an hour, even less. He said, I want you to stop just before the bridge. I said, I said there's no signal. He said, no, I want you to stop just before the bridge. I said, why is that? He said, yesterday, he said, I was on this turn and I got to that bridge and there were five kids there and they were lobbing bricks at the loco. So I'm going to lob them back today. <laughs> we, we, stopped, we stopped the engine. I stopped the engine at the bridge and that and behold, there were the kids just about to throw their bricks. Harry jumps down with his bricks and off they ran. <laughs> there were other charter trains which were not quite so much fun in their, in their way. They were called Footex and they were football specials and they would often be a disaster. Um, yeah, at that time, back in the 70s, there was a uh, lot of problem with football supporters. And uh, they used to have to use old coaching stock because they knew inevitably the trains would end up with smashed windows and all sorts of problems. And uh, it would be fairly common to have the communication called pulled a few times, you'd stop out of course, they were a nuisance. I was very lucky during my career, I only had one under and one near, which over the course of the time that is good, the average is about one every eight to ten years. Uh, but yeah, that was, a, that was quite an experience that, that night, you know, was something I didn't want to relive. Uh, but he was I only hit him at 15 mile an hour. I had to go under the train to him. Uh, he's still alive, but he died a few hours later out of New Barnet. But it happens. Uh, it made me fall apart a bit. I have had a fatality, and the handling of that at the time was handled in a way which was 1980s handling of that situation where it was a case of, well, you're okay, driver, can you carry on type thing? Now they wouldn't even ask you that question. You'd be taken off that train because obviously it's a... It's a highly stressful situation seeing a human being end up in lots of bits. You know, it's not, it's not something you can legislate for. It's not something you can even prevent. Even now, I, I, can, I can see it to this day, and this is from 35 years ago, you know. I say it's my longest day and my shortest shift was when they had the Potter's Bar crash. It was sort of strange, whereas I didn't expect it to be derailed, not the way it was. That was a scary moment because when I actually saw what happened, the derailment, and what could have happened, 
if I didn't like, did me training and put doing, put my fat circuit clips down there. That was the scariest part of Potter's Bar for me. Not knowing that the track circuit clips stopped the trains coming. I just put them down and hoped for the best. I went straight to the telephone to ring the signal box up and none of them worked because the train cut the cables. So I never had no phone. And that, that was a, I was hard to deal with, thinking I was on my own. You just know that you've got things to do and you just, and there's loads of things go through your head. I mean, when, when I eventually got through the signal and he says to me that trains have stopped, it was a massive relief, like, you know. Steam had finished by the time I joined, and it was diesels pulling coaches on track, jointed track, which meant, you know, he went bumpy bump, bumpy bump all the way. Now it's, um, you know, com compare that to now. We've gone through high-speed uh, high trains, 125s, then the line was electrified. First only to the local service, then all of 91, I think it was all the way to Edinburgh. There's no signal box on King's Cross now, for the first time in 170 years. Uh, the signal the signaling is controlled from York. Going into the 70s, there was a massive change from like diesel to high speed trains. Uh, also, the job, as in the, the driver's assistant second man, his job become null avoid. The newer trains obviously are a lot more complicated, a lot more electronics involved. Um, and, and going back to the old days with the old drivers, you know, a lot of them used to push bike to work, a lot of them didn't drive. Um, they were all brought up on steam engines and hit things with hammers and clinking and banging. And a lot of them were actually afraid of circuit breakers and fuses and they wouldn't let you turn the, the, the cooker off or the boiler off in case, in, just in case. These poor devils, they come back off their latest training course. And if you was their regular mate, they generally throw their book at you, say, you better read this, you know, you understand this stuff better than we do. Some of them were 60, you know, and they've never seen a diesel before. Now they've got to drive them. So, yeah, I've, I've seen the, the technological change and it, it was quite frightening for some of them. The Deltics, I'm just thinking about the Deltics because they're quite a unique engine, you know, and they're like a, I don't know, 100 tonne of loco. And they can pull a, a 300 tonne train at 100 mile an hour. So they're a huge bit of kit. I think they were, they were designed for high speed and you sat quite a high way up in the cab and you look out. So once you're doing 100 mile an hour, everything seems to be going by. It felt like you're doing it 200 mile an hour. We used to work at King's Cross with some old English electric 2000s, um, the class 40s, and you had to chase up times and you'd, you'd be leaning out the window, come on, come on, you passengers get in, I'm never going to keep time with this engine, you never had that with a Deltic. Uh, electrification obviously took off, I mean King's Cross was electrified in 1977 just before I got there, um, so the new inner suburban system and the outer suburban system had been electrified, so a lot of the older diesel trains had gone. So there was a, a change on the King's Cross power signal box had come into play um, and the old boxes had gone. Um, so there, there was a lot of technical changes at King's Cross itself. A lot of the old infrastructure was still there. Then obviously as the diesels got phased out in, for electrics, all of these you had to go to a classroom and learn about them and 
learn the ins and outs of their problems and things that you could put right and things that you couldn't put right <laughs> where you had to shout help. But there's a lot you had to get used to yourself, the quietness. I think that's what I found most with the electric, so and it quiet. One thing I really didn't like is when the work pattern shifted and we went from being a full train crew to just a driver and you were all by yourself all day. Sometimes you got a whole day without speaking to anybody else at all and I really didn't like that. I can say it as an outsider because I wasn't here at the time, but it was always seen as quite a militant depot. You know, some of the southern region depots were seen as militant, but King's Cross was always seen as a real hotbed of, of militant drivers. There was a huge oral history tr tradition as well because you imagine that if you're with a driver all day long and maybe for weeks on end you get to know each other and they pass down not just their own history but the history of King's Cross so you know we, we, we even in 1977 people told us about the fact that in 1911 when there was a rail strike uh, that the government and, and led by Winston Churchill actually put troops on the Caledonian Road and, and put machine gun posts around King's Cross Station and told the rail workers there that if you march or demonstrate, you'll be mown down. And that memory has been passed down through, through the years. It was a period, the 70s and 80s, of constant attack on the working conditions of drivers. Um, I suppose that really culminated in 1982 when management said that they were going to bring in something called flexible rostering. Initially they wanted drivers to be able to work either four hours up to 12 hours a day and that was a real real attack on conditions. The thing is I, I was there in 82 and 82 was the flex, flexible rostering uh, dispute. It was forced upon us as a trade union by a railway industry that uh, didn't want to consult and negotiate. It was like either you accept it or not. Uh, it was a long-running dispute and what people don't f forget about it was it had been running for about six, seven, eight months before we got to the, the day when we had the full week out on industrial action. Uh, out of that, the TUC made a judgment that we should go back to work. And that basically was the end of that. We got flexible rostering imposed on us uh, for very little return. And what was really nice at that time um, was the senior men literally put their hands in their pockets gave some financial help to the junior men. And by the junior men, I mean, you know, the second men and, and drivers, some of whom had very young families and, and that sort of thing. So we're financially struggling. After a couple of weeks with no income, um, it was a struggle. And to their credit, the older guys were happy to, you know, you know, some, there's, there's 20 quid, go, go and do your shopping or whatever. And that, again, is part of the railway family. And that 1982, when we came out, we get paid a week in arrears, you know? So the first week we're out, we've still got money. You know, this was a two week strike in 1982. Um, second week, we've got no money because we've, we've got no wages. My mum said to me, you've got to go work. I said, mum, I can't go work. She said, you've got to go work. So I went and see Aslef and um, we said to the branch secretary and I explained my predicament. And uh, he said, how much do you give your mum? I said, 25 pound a week. So he gave me £30 out of the hardship fund. And he says, yeah, he said, keep the five and get yourself a drink. And he did the same for the second week when we were done money as well. I never forgot that. 
But I mean, we had quite a few different strikes at King's Cross. Either national strikes called by a head office or some of our own personal little strikes, um, like against the sun. The sun virtually called us all a load of lazy, good-for-nothings, getting something for nothing and really making us look bad. So what we did, we said, right, we've got the newspaper trains, we'll still work them, but we won't take any Sun newspapers on them. There was a train at 21.45 which only contained Sun newspapers and two of our toppling drivers used to work it. So of course our guys refused to work it, um, so it sat there. I think this went on for about an hour and a half. Well, it was just absolute carnage. Um, the station filled up and trains couldn't come in. Trains were stuck right the way down now, down East Coast Main Line. And he gave in in the end and he said, right, get it off. So everybody was down there, myself included, you know, throwing these bundles of, of scum newspapers off the train and onto the platform. And then the two original drivers got on it and out it went. And it was like somebody pulling a plug out of a sink. <laughs> the whole thing <laughs> folded out like so. That, that was an interest, that was 19 then, and that was an interesting evening. Prior to privatisation, they started sectorising all the, all, the, all the work. So if you was on intercities, you was on the intercities all the time. If you was on local commuter trains, you ended up just doing them. It was compartmentalised, which is not how the, the culture I was brought up in. You know, we were one industry, one company, and... Um, you know, even down to the fact that, you know, the hotels and the catering outlets on the station were all part of British Rail. Pay didn't improve for train drivers until privatisation. We used working as a nationalised industry for one person, and that was the government of one thing. You suddenly had 26 tocks that wanted drivers. They then have to start to put their head in gear and say, we need to keep drivers, otherwise they're sodding off on the western or they're going down here because they're paying a better wage. And so it starts to go up. And that's how it chased itself. And that's where you get to the high value that drivers are paid now. They were obviously trying to poach them from the less well-paid freight depots and commuter uh, railway companies. And if you're poaching drivers, it saves you having to pay to recruit them and train them. The variety for all the drivers on the railway now has, has gone. You're allocated to one set type of sector of work and that's it. And you don't get the variety or the number of routes that we used to. And that's one of the reasons I think I had the best years. We used to go lots of different places on every type of train. It was great. The train that we're back from the car in is the 1333 LNER Azuma service to Harrogate. Uh, best thing that ever happened at King's Cross was Eurostar coming into St Pancras because they had to get their finger out and square it up like, you know, because it, it then become the gateway to England or Great Britain, you know, from the continent. But we came there on that Sunday morning, 2012, and looked in it and went, wow, you know, this is, considering what we had at the Western Congress, this so much brighter. Um, so much larger, you know, and clean. My most remarkable thing that we noticed first of all was they'd actually cleaned the train shed roof between one and eight. All of a sudden, you were, you, were, you know, you, you saw the, the sky out there, which you, you'd never saw before. 
especially Japanese tourists. They love Harry Potter. And they go, Harry Potter, where's Platform 9 and 3 quarters? There isn't one. And somebody had the bright idea going, look, we've got all these tourists turning up. We've got to do something. Somebody had the right bright idea of chopping a, <laughs> a trolley in half, a luggage trolley in half, and bolting it to the wall. And they put up a little notice, hand done notice at first it was, nine and three quarters. And so we had somewhere to direct these people to and they kept asking. As I said, you know, a 16 year old getting paid for something that you, you enjoyed doing. Uh, even now, 40 odd years later, I still get that same buzz when I go out and drive trains. I just feel really fortunate I've had the career I have had doing something that uh, has infused me, giving me life opportunities that I wouldn't have had. And also the, the, the upside to that is my trade union activities as a bolt on. It's just been, you know, I'd live it all again. It's been brilliant. This is a huge part of my life. I mean, I made some of the best friends I'll ever have in the railway. I'm still friends with them today. I mean, 40 odd years friendship is huge, isn't it? I love working at King's Cross, even now at my age. I, I get up early and 4 o'clock in the morning, I go to work and look forward, you know, and also I, I give my experience to the, my other colleagues. You know, if they go something wrong, if there's nothing, they always say, oh, go and ask Mickey, he knows everything. So I've done a lot of different things, but I still consider myself a railwayman, you know, because of that period at King's Cross. And it just also gets into your blood, you know. Somebody said, what's it like being on the railway, especially being at King's Cross? I said, well, I think it's, it's, it's best summed up by a Grateful Dead lyric. Uh, sometimes the light comes shining on me, other times I can barely see, but lately it's occurred to me, what a long, strange trip it's been. Thanks for listening to the final episode of The Train at Platform 5. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project was set up and run by arts, education and heritage specialist Digital Works, who worked with Candom Local Study Centre. To find out more about our history projects, including documentary films, podcasts, and to listen to the full unedited interviews for this project, please visit www.digital-works.co.uk.